There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Well, let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. My name is George Grumbacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Miner. Hello, everyone. Joining us, helping us move from awareness to action today is Roy Valley, former longtime CEO of Abnet, uh, a member of what I imagine are numerous, numerous boards, but one of them is the Federal Reserve, uh, which is pretty cool, and also a former member of the rock and roll band Betsy Russ, which, which you neglected to mention. You said you played the organ, but I didn't hear anything about this rock and roll band. Well, that was a long time ago, so... Thank you. Uh, good to be here. I appreciate uh, you guys inviting me, and I'm looking forward to hanging out for a few minutes. Should be a, should be a good conversation. So, first time I met Mr. Ballard, I was probably 23, 24 years old. I was just getting started in my career, and I got invited by one of my mentors to go up and play tennis at this neighborhood game. So it was all these guys that lived in the same neighborhood. Every Saturday morning, we'd get together and play tennis. So what I knew was I was a pretty good tennis player, so I was I was good there. I knew it was probably an awesome networking opportunity because it was real successful people. What I did not know was that Mr. Valley takes no prisoners. <laughs> so if you guys are familiar with doubles, sometimes you find yourself up at the net and your partner's behind you a little bit. Well, I was up at the net and Mr. Valley was probably about right where you're sitting. My partner hit a pretty lousy shot, traveled through the air right to you. A ball Mr. Valley could have easily just put away. Nope. Hard as he could, just nailed me with it. <laughs> so right there, right there, I kind of knew. All right, this this guy means business. So. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> I guess the first thing you learn about me is uh, I am competitive. <laughs> I do like to win. Winning is more fun than losing. So I like having fun. Therefore, I like winning. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> so how did you? How does one become the CEO of a Fortune 100, Fortune 200 company? Is that one step at a time kind of a deal? Well, for me, it certainly was. Um, and I, I suspect the path for different people will be very different because life is kind of that way. Um, but for me, uh, I just started off in an industry. Um, I changed companies twice. I ended up uh, in 1977 working for this company. Uh, the, the, the part I was in was called Hamilton Avnet at that time. And honestly, George, it was um, one job at a time. And my focus was doing that job to the very best of my ability, as opposed to thinking about what I wanted to do next or where I ultimately wanted to end up. And honestly, it wasn't until many, many years later, I, I got a promotion. And I remember talking to my wife that night saying, wow, you know, if this happens two more times, I'll be running this whole place. <laughs> and that was the, the first time that thought even entered my mind. Okay. So you started, I don't want to say that you started at the bottom, but you started sort of a regular position with Abnet. In, in the industry, this technology distribution industry, um, I actually started with a very small company called Radio Product Sales. And it was a work-study program uh, in conjunction with the school I was going through at the time. So I got some credits for it. Um, and I literally went to work there in the warehouse. Um, I ended up going to work for that company. And 
worked my way up to sort of a uh, inside sales position and then left to go to a big company I was recruited. Um, started in sales there, ended up as the branch manager. And that company actually got into a lot of financial trouble and I could see the handwriting on the wall, so to speak. And so I ended up going to Avnet in a field sales role in 1977 and then worked my way up. So when you say worked your way up, you make it seem like it's happenstance. What was the, obviously there's some talent and some grit involved in that. So talk to us a little bit more about how you actually worked your way up. Well, so um, it, it really was one job at a time. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll apologize in advance for if I use too many sports analogies, but I find that there's a lot of analogies between sports and business. And so um, let's see, we have both men and women in the audience. So take uh, soccer, if you will. Um, you know, so anybody can play AYSO soccer as a, a little kid and starts with bunch ball and you know, eventually works into something a little more sophisticated. Um, but if you're good enough, uh, you can move up into a, another league, uh, maybe get on a traveling team. Um, and if you're good enough, you can play for your high school. And if you're good enough, maybe you play for your college. And if you're good enough, you know, maybe you end up in the Olympics. And each time you step up, you can kind of see how you're doing. How are you playing relative to those other folks? But until you get there, you don't know how you're going to compete. So the only way to do it is, you know, do well at the level you're in, take a step up if that's what you desire to do, do the best you know how to do or can do, and see how you compete. And that's that's what I did. Now, Centauri, one other thing, there was there are a few lessons along the way. Many years ago, um, a guy told me there's two ways to win a race. You know, one is trip the other guy. Mm. And the other one is run faster. So you kind of got to decide, you know, what how you you're going to do this, right? And, you know, I thought about that for about four seconds and thought, you know, though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best at running faster. And so I found myself, even as an executive, talking to teams, we'd be watching a competitor, you know, out of one eye, like, oh, my God, they're going faster. This guy had a really big profit margin. And, you know, our focus was, wait a minute. What, what's our vision? What's our mission? What's our strategy? How are we doing against the things we said we wanted to get de- get done and do? Um, and are they doing something better? Should we adjust? But well, if not, then let's go back to running our race as fast as we can. And if they beat us, God bless them. They, they deserve it. But my experience is if you stay focused and you keep running as fast as you can, you might be surprised at how many races you can win. Roy, I'm curious, um, you talked a little bit about starting in sales. Do you feel like that's a good foundation for folks who want to get into business, become a salesperson? Oh, sure. I, I Not a lot happens until a sale takes place. Right. Um, I heard somebody say once, most of our revenue comes from customers. You know, so <laughs> the, you, you, you got to have some sales. But I do think there are other good foundations too, like finance, I think is a very good uh, sort of horizontal uh, knowledge and skill set that applies to uh, any business. Um, and I also think engineering from the standpoint of a lot of companies are uh, product-based companies, and I think nobody runs a product-based company better than a, an engineer, you know, a person that understands a product. Mm. So I think there's, there's multiple uh, ways to enter the business community. But yes, I do think sales is a 
a good way to get going. It's a good horizontal skill. Best and worst part about being CEO? <laughs> well, let's see. Um, so I think I'll, I'll start by trying to make you feel sorry for me. Mm. Um, so CEO is 24 seven, 365. Okay. There is, there's no downtime. When you wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, um, you're probably thinking about your business. Um, uh, somebody told me once, uh, business is a series of disasters interrupted by an occasional tragedy. Um, wow. So uh, pressure, um, and if you happen to be private, also this issue of cash flow, making the payroll. You know, for entrepreneurs, that's uh, I hear uh, people who struggled with entrepreneurship struggled with that pressure, um, meeting payroll for themselves and for the others that are part of their company. Um, travel, jet lag. If you're global, get used to it. I better learn how to sleep, sleep on planes and sleep in hotel beds. Um, so in a public company CEO, another really nice thing is your scorecard, you know, instead of coming, you know, once a quarter or once a semester, it's a live ticker, uh, called the stock price hmm. and, and people can watch it constantly. So, oh, and, and by the way, then on top of that, whatever you get compensated, they publish. So, uh, friends, uh, relatives, <laughs> uh, relatives you didn't know you had. Come out of the um, woodwork. Critics, uh, they know exactly what your compensation is. So there's there's plenty of stuff that's hard. Um, and, and the other thing I would say is the uh, sort of the tough decisions. Um, firing people is one thing. Laying them off, like when the, the technology industry collapsed and Avnet lost 40% of its sales in a three-quarter time span, we had to make some incredibly difficult decisions. Okay, best part? Yes. And um, I, I do feel terrible for you. Do you? I mean, I mean success. I, I, I kept looking for people that would feel bad for me. Um, best part, you know, it's interesting. Um, obviously, the compensation is great. There, there are not a lot of people that can do all of the things that CEOs need to do. And so the competition for that talent is fierce and um, public company CEOs make a lot of money. I made more money as a CEO than I ever imagined or dreamed I would and, and more money probably than I think I'm worth. But the market said I was worth that, so I got paid that. So that was pretty cool. And that, that has allowed me to do things from a lifestyle point of view and, and actually for other people as well um, that um, I feel very good about. But I think I would actually tell you the money is probably the second best thing about it. The best thing is that the, the perspective that you get from being a CEO, so the people that you get exposed to the information that you get exposed to, it is actually a privileged seat or perch. Um, and I learned so much as a CEO, it, I, I just can't begin to communicate it. And I literally believe I learned more every year than the prior year. So, so my 13th year as a CEO, I learned more than 
any other year I had been a CEO. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's because of that perch, that, that place you get to be. You get invited to things. You know, I've been to Bill Gates' uh, house in Seattle. I've been to a couple of IBM CEO conferences, a Cisco CEO conference. I was in a CEO roundtable. And you don't get to go to those things if you're not a CEO. So that's a, it's a, it's a privileged place to be, and I learned a lot. And I think that's probably the best thing about being a CEO. Uh, I'm curious to know, so they say it's lonely at the top. How important was it for you to surround yourself with other CEOs or other peers that knew what you were going through? Um, it was pretty valuable. <clears throat> um, so one of the things that I learned on my journey is that something like 70% of learning comes from on-the-job experience. And I suspect that I probably would have figured stuff out without that. So I don't, I wouldn't put it in the category of critical, you know, like life and death. On the other hand, um, I got invited to join a CEO forum even just before I became CEO. I was COO at the time. And uh, I stayed involved with that my entire tenure. I found it to be incredibly valuable. I still have relationships with the people who run that forum. I've been invited back to speak a few times at that forum. Um, So yeah, I, I find it extremely valuable. Being able to communicate with others who have a similar perspective is really valuable. Communicating with anybody can be valuable, but it's more valuable if they have that same perspective. Okay. Certainly been said that a big part of leadership is getting the most out of people. How do you do that? <laughs> so <clears throat> I actually have, I thought about that a lot in my first management job. It was a sales management position and honestly might have been my favorite job responsibility, managing salespeople. Okay. Um, and, and most of them, maybe all of them, but most, if not all, were older than me. So I was managing people, you know, that knew more than me, had more experience than me. So I asked myself, how, what am I supposed to do? How do I motivate these folks? And I ended up um, teaching myself that there's really a couple of basic things. Number one, make sure that they know that they know what you want them to accomplish. And notice I didn't say how. Make sure they know what you want them to accomplish. Because I think other people with different skill sets will use different hows to get it done. Um, But that's the key. Start with that. And then I think the only other thing you really need to do is remove the obstacles that they are unable to remove themselves. So you as the manager have the ability to do some things that maybe they can't do as the salespeople. And by the way, I think this applies at many levels of management. Um, so So if there was a problem that they couldn't fix and it was an obstacle, then I would take that one. Okay, that's my job. Your job is get in to see Mr. So-and-so and go find Mrs. So-and-so and you know make sure you get that design in. My job is to go fix this problem with the credit department or the IT system or a process issue. So make sure they know what you want them to accomplish. 
and remove obstacles that they are not able to remove for themselves. The trap on that one is don't let them delegate stuff to you that they should be doing for mm -hmm. themselves, right? So don't take on anything they have the ability to do. But th that was my key. And, and I think my perspective is the rest will take care of itself if they are motivated and want to do a good job. And my experience is the vast majority of people are that. For me, I, I, and it's probably just a different way of saying what you just said, is that expectations are so important. And I don't necessarily just want to call it management, but in every aspect of life, if it's somebody that you're working on an assignment with or a group project with, if you know what your expectations of one another are up front, probably going to, doing that up front is going to save you a lot of probably heartache on the back end if you don't. George, at our daughter's wedding and our son's wedding both, I gave speeches. And in those speeches, I said, no grandchildren, no will. So <laughs> they know. I, I completely agree with you. You, you need to have clear expectations. That's, that's, Do you have any grandkids? I have two on my daughter's <laughs> side, and she's golden. <laughs> she's golden. So Roy, um, when you look at leadership, there's so many different, um, there's so much literature, so many thoughts, so many things that you can do to become a better leader or, or a better manager. Talk to us about some of the things that you've uh, ascribed to, some of the things that you feel are really, really impactful when leading, because you were part of a large, large company. When you lead something that big, what are some of the best practices that you can do? You gave some great ones on management, but being a leader as a whole. So that's a huge question. Um, and I'm thinking about which way to go. Um, so let me, let me start with a track Centauri, and then maybe we can circle back to some other things too. But um, I think it's, it's difficult to tell people in various ways, do as I say, not as I do. So I think in order to get the most out of other people, you have to start by being an example yourself. You have to be a leader to uh, exhibit leadership. Um, to do that, I, I think there are some very important things. Personal goals is a good one. Um, for me, because I believe life is very unpredictable and you never know what opportunities and challenges you're going to be faced with and when they're going to come up. So it's hard to plan for all that and, and set timelines around those goals. But what you can do is establish your own personal core values. Um, what's important to you? How are you going to play the game independent of what the score might be at the end? Um, and with those core values, you have sort of a rudder that guides you through all the decisions that you will inevitably be faced with through these opportunities and challenges that get thrown your way. Uh, and sometimes they will lead you to lose battles and win wars. Um, my strong belief um, and experience is that um, if you do the right things consistently over time, you'll be amazed at how successful you can be. So in other words, don't worry about losing battles. You'll do the right things consistently and you'll do fine. I think that's the beginning uh, of leadership. Um, people will also tend to 
follow the actions that you take and the examples that you set uh, more so than they will do what you tell them to do. So that's one. When we talk about having a good understanding of what your individual core values are, I think that that is an extremely, extremely important thing. And I also think that it's something that we don't think about nearly enough. It's kind of like goal setting. Everybody in this room knows and understands how valuable it is to actually do goal setting, but how many of us have actually sat down and written those goals down? And when was the last time any of us actually sat down and really deeply examined what our core individual values are? And that's something that I really encourage everyone to do on your own to think about that. Because um, I feel like it happens less and less these days. I don't know if it's traditional institutions that a lot of people used to go to. Fewer people go to um, go to church. I know. Um, so I just kind of rambled on there for a little while. But advice to people on actually sitting down and putting pen to paper or different ways to think about that. Yeah. You, you know, George, um, I don't want to believe that your, um, you know, sort of perspective on People are maybe less ethical these days than they used to be. You might be right, but I, I don't want to believe it. What I do believe, though, is that media is per pervasive, right? I mean, you, you guys, I don't think, even understand how much information you have access to relative to just one generation prior. And, of course, media... Um, tends to focus on the negative things because that's what sells media. A pod, you know, a cat got rescued from a tree is not a headline story. So that, so we, I think, are being bombarded with more media than ever before, and as a result of that, we're getting exposed to more negative things. The, I think the the lesson there, though, is for the folks that are listening to this blog. Don't let yourself get sucked into that vortex. If you do, take the time to write down your personal core values and you live your life and, and work your career the way you want to behave so that when you're done, you look back at yourself and say, yep, I'm proud of the way I played the game. Then I think you can overcome that uh, sort of media uh, blitzkrieg that we're all being exposed to. How do those personal values translate to corporate values as a leader? So um, that's a really good question, actually. Um, so as a CEO, you know, but you could also say a department leader, an entrepreneur, you certainly have the right to bring your personal values into your workplace. Um, but I'm not sure you should. What, what I learned is that the workplace core values should be developed by the team. Now, there's a little bit of a double talk in there because as the leader of the team, you can influence those outcomes, either overtly or inadvertently, right? And you definitely do. They say that businesses take on the personality of its leader, that that happens over and over and over. So. I actually think you're, you're certainly entitled to your personal core values, and as a leader, you shouldn't have to compromise any of those in a business that you're leading, but I would strongly recommend that you gather your team 
or your stakeholders and let them help you in developing those core values for the business. And they might be different without even being in conflict. The different and conflict are two different things. It has to be essential. How many employees did Abnet have when you were CEO? At its when when I left, we had a little over 18,000. Okay. So tough for you to try to influence all 18,000 of them, right? You better have some good people that are helping you push out the vision and the mission. Absolutely. Um, so I'm actually going to come at that two ways, George. Well, one is, so I mentioned this, uh, you know, sort of media blitz. Well, actually, one of the good things is as CEO of a company with 18,000 people, I could send out emails. I could send out videos. I could send out posters. Um, and I can communicate with 18,000 people. A couple of generations ago, that couldn't be done. Layers that got put in place starting with, I think, some military practices that got adopted in the corporate world. Um, layers were done to, you know, so, so the guy's on a horse, go tell these people that, you know, and he got on his horse and, and, right. and rode off. Um, so you can communicate. Now, with that said, I will also tell you that I think one of the most important things leaders can do to assure or enable or accelerate success is to surround yourself with the right people. Um, and, you know, Jim Collins uh, wrote a lot about this. Uh, I'll just, I'll give you three lines. One, get the right people on your bus. That, and that's definitely plagiarized from uh, Mr. Collins. Two, get them in the right seats. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like in the sports world, maybe you draft for talent, but maybe your quarterback ends up a cornerback um, or your wide receiver ends up a, uh, tied in by the name of Ricky. Um, you know, stuff like that happens. Um, and then the third piece is, uh, which I don't think Jim Collins did talk about, get them working together without you personally having to be the hub in a hub and spoke wheel. Mm. The, the mental picture should be a ball bearing wheel where they're all moving at the speed of agreement and you're getting involved in the major problems and the major opportunities where there's a disagreement. Okay? So anyway, the, surround yourself with the right people and, um, and have established corporate core values. That'll go a long way towards communicating with 18,000. Right. Are you a patient person? I actually am, believe it or not. I'm, I... Um, especially when it came to significant people choices. Um, my attitude was, as long as we're making progress, I think I want to stick to the game plan. If we stall or are going backwards, then I want to make a change. But um, I tried not to let the rate of progress uh, actually cause me to make change too frequently. And, and maybe this is a good time to throw in uh, a quote that I, I mentioned to you previously, but Gordon Moore, who is one of the co-founders of Intel, is world famous for this thing called Moore's Law, which described how fast semiconductor technology could change and evolve. But I heard him give a speech. He was being honored uh, at the Semiconductor Industry Association a few years back. And he said, that's not my favorite quote. 
And I was like, really? Here's my favorite quote. People always overestimate what can be done in the short term. And then they underestimate what can be done in the long term. So back to this thing about patience. You know, it's, it's tricky because it's part art and part science. But knowing when to make a change on a strategy or a person, um, my attitude was if we're progressing, let's work on accelerating the rate of progress. But if we're stalled or going backwards, then I know a change is needed. Right. Well, certainly throughout your career, you've been a patient person, just talking about how doing the best you can at every job that you had and knowing that you were slowly advancing up, that certainly demonstrates, demonstrates patience. I imagine it was challenging having to answer to shareholders on a quarterly basis, being a publicly traded company. So I was just curious how you sort of balance all of that. Um, we have a lot of students who are interested in entrepreneurship and there are some great entrepreneurial startup companies here on campus that are making these skateboards, for example. Um, what advice would you give just about patience to a college student? I don't think that was a very good question, but yeah. we'll, 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 let's we'll, expand it to what advice would you give for patience for anyone as far as it drives their success? Well, like I said, I honestly believe that um, it, it, it's an art more than a science um, because there are times where you need to make changes. Um, so, for example, another thing that hasn't entered this conversation yet, we talked about having personal core values and corporate core values. When somebody violates a corporate core value, you can't really have a lot of patience. And my attitude was the standard for enforcement should rise as you go up the org chart, not the other way around. It seems like a lot of times it's easy to enforce uh, core values or ethics violations with frontline people because they're easily replaced compared to a senior vice president. Um, but I personally removed a senior VP and at a different time a VP from the company for violate clear violations of our policy. The hard part of that was they weren't doing it for themselves. They were actually trying to improve the results of the company. This had to do with sort of misrepresenting things to our suppliers. Um, so it wasn't for their personal gain as much as it was the company, but it was still a clear violation of our uh, code of ethics. So I had to make terminations to set examples. Okay, so for you, I think the issue is you know, is, is it a black and white issue or is it a gray one? Um, are you making progress or are you stalled? Uh, and progress is moving forward, you know, not sort of treading water. You've got to be moving forward. I think those are guidelines, but honestly, the circumstances are so varied that I think you've got to make those choices. And it's, uh, there's a little bit of art required. You just have to sometimes rely on your instinct. You, um, you talked to them. I really want to know about this. You talked about this uh, in one of your challenges, but more and more we hear about um, work-life balance and being a CEO. How, talk to us a little bit about how that worked or did not work. And uh, looking back, if there's anything that you would change in how you structured your days to be more family-oriented or more community-oriented or what that looked like for you. Yeah, another good question. So honestly, um, if not for my wife, Cindy, who 
you know, we, we started dating when I was 16, she was 15. We got married when I was 19, she was 18. Um, and uh, we're, so far, we've been married about 46 plus years, so there's a good chance it's gonna work out. <laughs> I think so, um, too. And I would tell you, I think, honestly, without her, I probably would have focused too much on the career and would not have had the work-life balance that I do. Um, and today, I'm you know, 40, 46 years married, two kids, two grandkids, and a very close relationship with my family, um, every member of, my, of our family. Um, so I really give credit to Cindy. So I think, therefore, the advice I would give all of you is find a good spouse, because um, it's hard. Now, that's, that, that is a little bit of a sort of a trite answer. Another answer is um, you got to think of your time like a pie chart. There's no more than 100% of it. And I do believe that you should be conscious of the amount of time you're allocating to different major aspects of your life. And whatever you choose for work, if you're an entrepreneur, it's going to be probably bigger than if you're not an entrepreneur. Um, but whatever you choose, try to honor that. Try to stay within it. It is important to make this a marathon and not a sprint. And in order to do that, you've got to maintain some balance. Um, the reality is that you won't be able to maintain that 100% of the time. So when it, when it goes over, think about take a day off, uh, leave in, for early one day, take a uh, vacation, you know, figure out how to get that balance back if it does get out of whack, because it will. You said that you're a very patient man. Do you think Cindy would agree with that? Yes. Okay. I think I think Cindy is my alter ego. She would probably tell you I'm way too patient. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but we, we were and are terrific partners. I think one of the things I think has been good for us is we, we made no major decisions uh, in our entire lives without two yes votes. You know, if one of us didn't agree, we just didn't do it. And because of that, and, and her strengths are different from my strengths, we did pretty good. We didn't make any major mistakes. You hear people say that there's just not enough hours in the day. We talked a little bit about work-life balance and time management, things like that. Do you feel like you were able to get everything done that you needed to? Looking back now on your time as CEO, and now you've got a little bit, perhaps right now you're so involved with other things that you're as busy as you were before. Um, when people say there's not enough time in the day, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think that most jobs, including uh, startups, you know, uh, being an entrepreneur, I think the truth is, there's more to do than can be done all the time. And if you believe in the old saying that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you have to remind yourself that your job or your vocation is squeaking more than the, the gym saying you haven't been there for a while or your spouse saying, you know, you haven't taken me out to dinner. Um, you, you, don't, you don't hear that as much. So you've got to be careful about that and get back to this work-life balance. Now, 
The other part of that, though, George, is there's, there's a difference between how much time you commit to your career and how effective that time is. And so things like um, planning, prioritization, um, effective communication, doing things once instead of having to come back and do them two or three times. So this notion of quality of work, those things are all factors here too. Um, and then the other thing I want to say on this topic is, even with all of that, get it all right, do it all perfectly, the reality is that things happen in waves. And there are times when you're in full control and, and there is enough time in the day. And then there are times when there's not. And when there's not, the key is to make sure that the part that's not getting done is the least important part. One of my favorite quotes is you either live by priority or you live by pressure. So just going to exactly what you just said, making sure that you're doing the most important things all the time. Right. And based on my experience, here's another little mental picture for you. When you feel like there's not enough time in the day, it's kind of like that feeling of having your head underwater. The interesting thing about it is whether your head is an inch underwater or six feet underwater, it still feels the same. You can't breathe. But when you knock off two more items off your to-do list and your head pops up, it's that great feeling of oxygen filling your lungs. So my experience is if you, if you keep your work-life balance in order and then you do, keep working on being as effective as you can be with the time you do put in, it's amazing how short those periods are where you actually feel like you're underwater. Got it. So I'm just curious what a typical day was like for you hmm. as CEO. Did you have just meetings after meetings? How did you... How did you track what had to get done? So another person I'm going to give a ton of credit to is my executive assistant, Karen Zopleth. Um, Karen and my wife, Cindy, basically ran my life. They, they, they would communicate with each other on an as-need basis when we got into uh, overlap of, of time, you know, personal business. But um, Karen would uh, schedule my meetings, my phone calls, my travel, um, you know, I, I, I got to voice an opinion, but, <clears throat> you know, she was pretty much in charge. She called the shots. And, uh, yes, I would come to the office and uh, I would be on the phone or in a meeting pretty much the entire day. Got it. That's, that's, that's the way it worked. Or I'd be on an airplane. So one of the things, I, I'm kind of a uh, activity junkie. Um, I'm pretty good at parallel processing. Um, so I actually enjoy having a lot of balls in the air. Mm -hmm. Now that said, if you walked into my office, you would actually see a very clean and organized desk. I had some coworkers who had no idea how the hell I could do my job and, and not have stuff everywhere. But I, I'm also big on you know, getting things off my list. So keep the list prioritized, but keep knocking stuff off the list. And I like staying organized. Probably have a slight uh, amount of OCD going on here. <clears throat> That's interesting. I, I would have to think that that was what helped to make you successful as CEO managing so many different things. So I know that I personally am a terrible multitasker. So 
be a lousy CEO, probably. Well, some people are, are serial processors, you know, uh, single item deep. Uh, others mm -hmm. are, are more multiplexers. You know, honestly, my perspective is anybody, I really mean this, anybody can be successful. Um, the, one of the key ingredients, though, is self-awareness. So knowing that about yourself, surround yourself with people that maybe are different from you, um, or just make sure that, you know, that consciousness causes you to do things uh, correctly or in a way that compensates for that. And knowing your strengths and being able to, to lean on your strengths. So um, the, the, if there is a secret to success in business and maybe in life, it might be self-awareness. You know, learning more about yourself and then maybe having the humility to go along with that to be able to say, yeah, that's what I'm like, so therefore. So how do I get better at that? At being self-aware? At being self-aware? So, <clears throat> one... Uh, be aware that you want to learn about yourself. So are you open to feedback from others? Um, do you solicit feedback from others? Um, or do you create an environment where they feel safe sharing things with you? Or are you more on the intimidating side or don't care side? Um, now, beyond that, there are actually... There's a whole industry around um, tools that can be used to profile personalities, strengths, weaknesses, communication styles, uh, desired vocations, et cetera, and coaches also that focus on that as well. So it kind of depends on how deep you want to go. Mm -hmm. But I just think it starts with you know, mm -hmm. making sure that you want to learn more about yourself and other people around you know that. Well, i got to ask. So you've had... An illustrious career, impressive resume, so on paper, ostensibly very successful man, but how do you, as a CEO, or former CEO and leader, looking back at your life, how have you defined success? How do you know that you've done, you've done good, you've done well? So for the last uh, several years at Avnet, I decided to teach a class. I had heard about Jack Welch and this thing he was doing called Croton on Hudson, and, and I thought it was really a good idea. So... I started teaching a class and therefore I had to develop a curriculum. It's a lot of work teaching mm. a class. Um, <laughs> Turns out. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I thought about was the definition of success. And the conclusion I came to is it's happiness. So figure out what makes you happy and I believe you will consider yourself successful. Um, you know, money creates flexibility. Um, it allows you to do things that maybe make you happy, but there is no direct correlation between monetary gains and happiness. Um, I think there's plenty of examples of just the opposite of that. So personally, I wanted to make money. I wanted to have choices. I wanted to have flexibility. I also felt it was back to that competitive thing. It's kind of a scorecard uh, to some extent, but I think the real definition of success is happiness. I got to tell you, last night I uh, hosted this Jeffersonian dinner, so got about eight people around the table just to ask a single topic and question. And my question was, if all jobs have the same pay and prestige, what would you do and why? 
and it was interesting that no one picked the, the job that they were in. Huh. And uh, everyone had really interesting answers. Like one guy wanted to be a, he's like, I would be a country singer. Like if I could do that and get paid for it, that's what I would do. And someone said, I'd be a basketball coach. Cause those are the things that would actually make them happy. So it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's happiness, it's happiness. I think for me, it would be that sales manager job. That's what you I do. love that job. Okay. Well, let's open it up for anybody that, that, that has a question for, for Mr. Valley here. So. Well, Roy, obviously there are students. What advice would you give to students this age? What, what should they be thinking about? How can they find that first opportunity? Well, <clears throat> so first of all, as students, <clears throat> I think that you know the reason you're here is to accumulate knowledge. Um, as you get into your careers and you leave uh, GCU or academics in general, you're going to take a combination of your intellect and your knowledge and put it to work on a day-to-day -day basis making choices. So gather as much knowledge as you possibly can. <clears throat> Another one would be figure out what makes you happy um, to make sure that you're, you're sort of heading down the right road. Um, the, the other thing I would say is a bit repetitive, but um, I think it's worth repeating. And that is, you have no idea where you're going to be 20 years from now, 10 years from now, probably even five years from now, maybe, maybe five years from now. And <clears throat> I would encourage you not to be frightened by that or to be concerned about it. <clears throat> what I would encourage you to do is learn, know yourself, perhaps develop your own core values, and get out there and see what happens. Um, and then I think, do your best, you know, run faster than the other guy. Um, and I or think that, him. or well, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you, obviously it's a choice you can make. Um, others have chosen that path, by the way. Um, I, it's just not for me. Um, it's not what makes me happy, so therefore I don't wanna do that. Um, and, um, I, I think see what happens. Literally, if, if you look, there, there, are, there are huge jobs today. Like, you know, a hot, sexy job right now, I guess, is coder. Um, you know, and, and the, the goal is some sort of a web app or a, a game that turns into a blockbuster and, uh, you know, you become a gazillionaire and live in Silicon Valley. Um, that job didn't exist 20 years ago. There might have been some, let's see, there would have been some high-level programming in Fortran or something, or maybe basic uh, 20 years ago, right? Um, certainly not 40 years ago. So there are, the point I'm trying to make is there are jobs in the future that haven't even been created yet. Mm. So how do you know if you want that job? So I think just get your own act together, get out there and experience life and see what happens and make good choices along the way and good things will happen to you. Roy, I can ask a follow-up question on, you look at um, all the literature coming out of Silicon Valley is saying, you know, we love coders, we love engineers, but we need people that have things that kind of span across disciplines. So what are some of the things that you would see? Is it communications? Is it writing? Is it um, being able to just be in a group and resolve conflict? What are some of the things that will be something that will last for 40 years that will always help someone who is in the position to do those things right now? Yeah, well, 
So, uh, you know, I think uh, in, in the context of macro trends, so international slash global is a very good thing. I don't know if any of you are thinking about that from a business school perspective, um, but most companies now, as they get to any sort of critical mass, find themselves either competing with foreign competition or wanting to sell into foreign markets. So the, the, the economy is becoming more and more global, and so global experience is a good one. Um, I mentioned previously finance. <clears throat> I think that's a great discipline. Um, I do think sales and uh, engineering are good ones. Um, but then I want to pivot the question a little bit and kind of lean back on something you were commenting on earlier, George. Um, so I, I, I sort of ex expose that I'm a little bit uh, uh, OCD, maybe, and that caused me to be highly organized. In the left brain, right brain context, I'm actually, I've been tested twice, and I two times I came out 13, 12, so I'm, I'm slightly left of center. Um, but the point I want to get to, Centauri, is the best engineers, the best coders, are not the analytics. It, they're the right brain creatives mm -hmm. that then learn the skills to be able to translate that creativity into something of substance. So um, analytics can be coders all day long, or designers, um, or, or web developers. But if you have if you develop right brain skills, big picture, what's the context here? What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to accomplish? Um, and then add your technical skills to that. I think that's that's crazy valuable. And by the way, those are the folks that end up either leading departments or their own businesses, in my opinion. Most of the Fortune 500 CEOs are right brainers, not left brainers. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at uh, this may have been a few years ago, but if you look at degrees on the um, Fortune 500 CEOs, it's like one of the top ones is history. Yeah. Because they can think things through. Yeah. yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> it, it because it's a perspective setter. History right. has this way of repeating itself, mm -hmm. and so if you know history, you can sort of figure out how to react to a situation. Right. Yeah. But it's also that that mindset of big picture thinking. Any other question? Oh. Yeah. So is that where you look for in a person? For example, when you're a CEO, is that what you look for? So what we looked for would depend on the position that we're trying to fill. That's number one. But then I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you another curveball, and I apologize for talking out of both sides of my mouth, but sometimes these topics are complex. Um, in any given job, there is a, a list of competencies and experience that you would look for. And the question is, how does that applicant compare in a composite score to the other applicants? So maybe one might be a right-brainer and one might be a left-brainer, right? And for that position, maybe right-brain would be preferred. But the other person had 10 years of experience and this person has one. And, you know, so it's a complex score. I think that the, the key for all of us is understand yourself and, and what your skills are and your capabilities are, and then build on your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. 
that that's the key for you as an individual okay and there's I have witnessed myself included there are a lot of different formulas for success um, specifically I don't believe you can run you can give somebody a test and through the test determine who the best person for the job is I think at best case it's uh, another indicator to throw into the hopper Is what? Vision. Personal vision? Yeah, and outside when you were CEO. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty important if you want to be the leader. So th there are examples where this is contradicted, but in my opinion, the person leading the enterprise should be the owner of the vision for the enterprise. Um, because there needs to be one cook in the kitchen um, and as the environment changes and adjustments are considered the the owner of the vision has to be the ultimate arbiter of whether or not those changes get made okay in a products company because the vision is typically wrapped around the products that's what that's why I said earlier I actually think uh, uh, an engineer or a products person should be the leader of a products company or they make the best leaders of product companies. There are examples of other successes. I just like the odds in that situation. So vision's important for that. If, if you were aspiring to be a, <clears throat> let's say a C-level global sales executive, um, vision's kind of important, but not as important in my opinion. George. Uh, earlier something was mentioned So um, th that has uh, expired, by the way. I termed out um, I'm good at one year ago. Putting bad information out into the ether. Yes. He's really good at that. So um, what happened is um, I, I was asked several years ago while I was CEO, uh, I got a phone call. Janet Yellen, um, who was running the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank at the time, was going to do a meeting, a staff meeting, in Scottsdale. <clears throat> and I was asked if I would come and be the dinner speaker. And my first question was, why? <laughs> you know, they, they don't understand who they're talking to. Um, but they said they'd like me to talk about semiconductors and the tech industry. And I thought, sure, I'll do that. I checked my calendar. I was in town, which was a shocker. And so I went to this dinner. Um, two days later, I was invited. Uh, to join the board of the San Francisco Federal Reserve, also known as the 12th District. And I couldn't do it because of the time commitment. They, the meetings, there were too many meetings, too many phone calls. I was pretty busy. But I did join um, an uh, advisory council, which I sat on for a couple years until I announced my retirement from Avnet. And then they came back and said, okay, so now, you know, can you be a member of the board? And I accepted. So it turns out um, every district of the Federal Reserve, there are 12 of them, they have an external board of directors. There are nine directors, three of which are bankers, three are appointed by bankers, 
and three are um, completely independent of the banking industry um, and have to disavow any investments or any involvement in the financial industry. So I was in that third category. And the chairs of the districts, the, the deputy chairs and chairs, have to come from that third category to maintain the you know, fiduciary uh, separation with the Federal Reserve's uh, regulatory oversight uh, responsibility. So I ended up uh, serving on the San Francisco Fed board. And for my last two years, I was the chairman of that board. So then Janet went on to Washington. John Williams came in and chairs went back to Washington twice a year for a thing called the Conference of Chairs. And my last year, I was asked to chair the Conference of Chairs uh, as well in DC. So we were hanging out in the room where the FOMC meets and sets interest rates. And, you know, it was, uh, it was very educational, very fun. Um, and I felt like it was in that give back category. Although I did get paid, I think it was $5,000 a year and all you could eat. Nice. <laughs> they said there's a reason they call it the Fed. We have a hard stop at 1230. This room fills in. Everybody else has classes to go to. So I apologize for the squeeze on time. Okay. okay. One more. Where are we done? I think we're good. Oh. That's one more. Okay. Go. One more. Uh, who has been the most influential person in your life? Okay. Great question. Been asked a lot. Um, for me, I mean, I had a, I had a math teacher that was phenomenal. Uh, actually in high school, made me love math and, and things like geometry and algebra, believe it or not. Um, I was a huge fan of Ronald Reagan, probably too, too early for most of you, but I thought he was a terrific uh, president. I loved his core values and you know what he stood for. But the honest truth is, my answer to your question is, um, I did not have a mentor uh, a specific person that I tried to model myself after. But what I did do is develop this attitude that I can learn from literally everybody that I interact with. And what I tried to do is figure out what are the traits I want to emulate and what are the things I never want to replicate? Because you can learn both ways, right? The, there's a whole bunch of things and people in the middle, but I tried to learn on the two ends, and I just did that continuously over time and built my own composite of what I believed in. Excellent. Right. Thank you, Roy Valley. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. A special applause for Santoni and Doors. Thanks. You didn't play the ukulele. I don't know how to that play the ukulele. Good job. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and feel free to share us on social media. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.